0: As we consider church, one of the things we're going to do is going to draw a line back. This is the story of us. These stories that we read about in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, right the way through to the end of the story in Acts chapter 8, these are, we share some spiritual DNA with these people. This is our story. We share this story. In order to know where you're going, you need to see where you've been, says James Burke, uh, the science historian. Sometimes you need to, as As Jude intimated in the introduction, you need to look back. You need to look back to the start in order to make any progress forward. I think one of the errors that church has made over these um, past centuries is that we've not done that. We've there's there's a there's a sense in which we've been a bit blinkered over the years. Looking back, if you ever if you ever read read back into church history, it can be dark reading. It can make for troubling reading. And you read through the stories and you think, I'm not sure that's how it's supposed to be. Read. And, and, it, and it's, it's, it's almost like like the church has got lost in a giant theological game of Chinese whispers. You know Chinese whispers? Where you say the phrase at the start. I used to really enjoy Chinese whispers as a child. Chance for mischief, I think, somewhere in the line. But somebody says this expression at the start, this sentence, and then the next person says it, the next person says it, and you're about 10 people around and all of a sudden the messages change. the sentence might not really make sense you know in fact sometimes when you play Chinese whispers you know it it bears no resemblance to the phrase that went out at the start and all you've got to go on is the person to your left and you're going to regurgitate with the some enthusiasm that message to the person to your right that's how Chinese whispers works and I think sometimes it feels to me like like the, It looks like the church has been on that kind of story. Somebody said really loud, this is the way the church needs to be this is this is what church is. It looks like this, and we've gone on crusades and we've gone in in the name of God we've gone and killed hundreds and thousands of people and we've done terrible things we've done amazing stuff, but we've done terrible things and we've we've had people who in the name of God, have preached sermons uh, sort of not only condoning slavery but kind of Bigging it up, saying this is a this is a good thing to do. And it's just sometimes churches got so lost, and I guess more recently, and I guess I'm condemning history. Sometimes you look back, you condemn history. The church today does similar kinds of things. We get kind of blinkered and we get just incredibly strong views about what we think church is, and church becomes other things. It becomes about pews. People will leave churches over pews and and organs, and dress codes, and leadership structures, and stuff like this. And we say, no, this is church. It's the building. That's what church is. We, say, we, we, we get in this mindset, and, and we do it too. We get, we get totally the wrong end of the stick about church, and we, we lose the sense of our origin, I think, sometimes as church. The remedy to chronological snobbery, this is C.S. Lewis' quote, the remedy to chronological snobbery is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries Flowing through our minds, this idea with the wisdom of C.S. Lewis that we not only need to see the start, which is where we're headed with Acts, we're going to go back to the start to guard ourselves against it, but we need to see right the way along the the line of Chinese whispers. It's healthy to do that, to look at what we've done, the good things and the bad things, and to trace that line right back to the start. So for for this next 12 weeks, we're going to look back to the story of Acts because, and I've reflected on this in the last couple of weeks, I have fallen head over heels in love with this church. I love our lack of tradition, genuinely. I am just, I, I am so encouraged by it and the spirit of the place and where we're headed and what we stand for. And, and with all of this stuff that's going for us, I am aware that one of the biggest temptations we will face is that we succumb to temptation and tradition and error, and we, the things that we do now, we set in stone as the way church is, and we just lose ourselves, and we become blinkered. In the words of Francis Chan, church might end up cooking up a wonderful spaghetti bolognese, and then we come to realize when we get to heaven that God had ordered steak. We, go and we might do something incredibly well, just something awesomely well. We might have the best this, the best that, the best worship, the best building, or whatever else, and actually when it gets to heaven... We realize, oh man, God asked us to do this with church. So we're going to take a step back and look into the book of Acts. I wonder if you could pop the, uh, the text up. We're going to see uh, something about the story of us. And first of all, a little bit about the way that we're going to do this. Um, so you, we're looking at a story, essentially. And um, one of the big questions that people ask who study the book of Acts is, is it, is it prescriptive? Or is it descriptive language? So this is not, these are not two word, words I've, I've harnessed in on, and I'm, I'm bringing this to you by myself. you watch any sermons on the first book of Acts, the cool dude from America standing at the front will start off with this mindset. Is it prescriptive? Is this a manual for church? Is that what the book of Acts is? Or is it descriptive? Is it just writing about the stuff that happened? And the answer that I have come to, as I've sat down and, and, and studied this, is that it's, it's both. Um, This is at the end of this uh, this chapter. There is a story about how the apostles replace Judas with another apostle. And do you know what they do to replace him? You can flick through in your in the book when you read it. They they toss a coin to replace him, Uh, or they, they cast lots. They toss a coin. It's the same sort of thing. And I don't think that's the manual that we're supposed to follow. Although I do. I did when I thought about this this afternoon. I thought that might be a lot of fun. Um, for us to try and it certainly might increase numbers at the members meetings if we said to you all that next week at the members meeting we're going to appoint a new leader and we're going to get five or six people stood in line and we're just going to pull straws you know i think i would imagine that everybody would be there at the next members meeting but it's not what the book of acts is doing but there are principles even behind that that are important that that we do need leaders we do need leaders who have seen christ we do need leaders who we can trust that have seen Christ. And we do need to know that this story goes on. So with the book of Acts, it's not, it's not a manual in that sense. But it is, we don't read it as a, a manual that we go to and we go, okay, I need to do this now and I need to do this now. But we read it as a story that is a bit more cute. And we have to read it more carefully. And then we guard it against other parts of Scripture. And we look for the principles that come out of the page. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach so one of the th- one of the things we get with luke it's as far as I can see it looks like it's two two volumes of one book when we get to the, the book of luke and it, it, as I, as, I, as I read it, it strikes me that every everything that these uh, that the people who wrote the Bible did they wrote down on scrolls and it it reads like um, Luke got to the end of one scroll and It was about as much as you could carry. And he got another scroll, and he he wrote the next part of of Luke, which is the story of Acts. And it was as much the fact that the the scroll had run out and the scroll had gotten so big that you couldn't really make it any any further. Then he decided to write a separate book. These stories are interconnected and interlinked. It's worth just knowing that. In my former book, Theophilus, I I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So there's a few things in there in this reintroduction, the, the big introductions in the style of Luke, but in this kind of reintroduction, there's a couple of things that pop up that you want to take note of. One's kingdom, and we'll come to it. The other one's like very practical. When I think of this guy, Theophilus, some people think he's not a real guy, it means Lover of God, I think, or something like that. I, I read it, and I think this sounds like he's a real guy. It sounds like he's a real guy who's getting a letter. And he sounds like a real guy who's getting a letter who doesn't really know the full part of the story. And in a really simple way, you know, he's, he's a Gentile. He's somebody who doesn't know the backstory of Judaism. And it's, it's kind of like he's coming to this story, and he's seen evidence of the Holy Spirit. He's seen this wonderful new thing that is the church. And then he's heard about the backstory of Judaism, and he's heard about... Jesus' death, and he's heard about Jesus' resurrection, and he's trying to put all this stuff together, and one of the things I think Luke does when he writes this book is he puts all this stuff together so we can understand it. Here's why it's important that you understand a little bit about Jewish history. Here's why it's important that, that Jesus lived and taught in a certain way, and then died in a certain way, and it's important that he rose again, and here's, and, and here's what the church looks like on the back of all of that, and he pulls these things together for us. So I think these might be a bit bo- this might be a bit boring stuff, but it would be helpful by the end of twelve weeks for just to have a clue about about where he's headed. And the, the second thing, and this I could list thirty things. You read some of the books that Paul keeps in his his library. These introductions to Acts are just ridiculous. They just go on forever and ever. So you could have twenty sermons on the introduction of Acts, and you'd all be fast asleep, wonderfully uh, ready for the re- the next week. The, the second thing I would like to draw your attention to is the fact that it. It demonstrates the true nature of God's kingdom, um, and we need to see that. We need to see exactly what the kingdom looks like. I think one of the problems we face today, in certainly in the West, is is the idea of the kingdom of God would scare a lot of people to death. Um, in 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 light of our his, historically the Crusades, I think in terms of what God's rule might look like, and and more up to date. You know, Islamic fundamentalism—the idea that that is what good, God's rule and reign looks like—that's had an impact, I think, on how people talk about church when they're on TV. It's—it's it's frightening, and it's changed. I think our views in the West and in America and other countries too on this idea. This—the technological term—is this idea of theocracy. I think we've got the wrong idea of what God's rule and reign looks like. And now in the West, what we do is another technical term. We've become a bit deist. We take God. We put him up on the shelf and we just have this thing that's handy to turn to every now and again. And that is not what God's like. That is not what his rule and reign will look like. And we need the book of Acts because we see in the book of Acts what his rule and reign does look like. And it's not a bunch of people demanding and, and, and firing into new lands and blowing people up and that sort of thing. It's all the stuff that Jesus said. It's loving your neighbor. It's being a peacemaker. It's turning the other cheek. It's sticking to your word and as, and as we see the story develop in the book of Acts, we realize we need to hang on to these teachings. This is, this is, what, this is actually in some parts what, what saves people. One of the narratives of the book of Acts is that people are saved by what the apostles say, but they're also saved and changed and drawn to the fact the way that these apostles live and what they do and how they are. And I think in a couple of weeks we'll see that as we come onto Christian community, maybe in three weeks we'll see that people are drawn to the church, not just by the message that's going out, crucial though it is, but they are drawn by the way that people are living out the values of the kingdom of God. So let's dive into the story a little bit. I, um, I really like the picture, the, Luke causes us in chapter 1, of Acts to really pause over the, over the early church and what the church might look like without the Spirit. We often, uh, we often read at the end of the Gospels and certainly at the start of the book of Acts about, about the, the early church, there's 120 of them I think, and I guess at different stages, and they're often in rooms, like hiding in fear, and if you've ever watched any dramatizations, they're helpful to bring it to life, and there's this idea that they're, they're scared to death. And I want us just to pause over the, tr- the trauma that these guys must have gone through just for a second. Can you imagine? I mean, first of all, they drop their jobs and they put all they invest every ounce and every bit of energy into their hope in this man, Jesus Christ, that he will save them. And they, they follow him, don't they? They literally follow him and they see him do things like walk on water and they're, they're up there like this guy's amazing. All of their hope is in him and then he is taken and hung on a cross and died and the, the apostles and the disciples, don't, not all of them, don't even get far enough to see that. But can you imagine the kind of the trauma that that brings? And then for, for three days, they're just, you know, on their knees, I would imagine. Maybe they, they've got complete faith that Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. But if you've ever seen anybody die, it's kind of final, isn't it? And then Jesus is raised to life. I don't think we spend long enough thinking about the kind of shock that the disciples would have gone through when they've seen this, oh, man alive, my hope is back again. You know, just think about the sort of journey that they're going on, how little it takes for to throw us off beam in our week. We're a little bit up, we're a little bit down, and then we're all over the place. The disciples have this, and they've got this trauma to, to put up with, and Jesus is risen, and they've got all this hope again. And this passage says he's with them for 40 days, sort of demonstrating that he's here and he's around. And then what happens at the end of this story, remember from the reading, Jesus, and this is one of the, I think this is one of the hardest pictures to sort of grapple with in your mind. This, this, the resurrection, Jesus dying on a cross, I don't have it. I'm fine. I can see it. No, and, but then the idea that Jesus is taken up into heaven, and if, if you go to any grand old uh, churches of England and you look, I think if you're in the altar and you face to your left, you'll see a stained glass window with a cloud on it and two feet hanging down, which is kind of to represent the ascension. It's a really hard picture to get in your mind, but to me, these disciples are going to be all over the place. And then in this you know, psychologically scarred state, Jesus gives them this command. And it's, it's a command that shapes the whole church. But for these guys to hear this, this is, just, this is mission impossible. Not to be too corny, but that's what it is. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem... In all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the Earth, it takes this, this bunch of fishermen sitting terrified in a room and says, "You're going you're to turn the world on its head. You're going to do this, and you're going to start in Jerusalem." And if, if I was there, my hand would be up at that point, and I would say, "We know what happens in Jerusalem. when we speak up the killers in Jerusalem, and Jesus says, "You're going to start in Jerusalem, and then you're going to go to Samaria." And then my hand would be up again. I would say, they hate us in Samaria. There's racial, racial tension. We can't live with each other. I can't even look at them. They can't look at me. Jesus says, we're going to start in Jerusalem. We're going to go to Samaria. And then, and then we're going to go to the ends of the earth. We're going to go to places that don't speak your language, that you don't know, that you can't even begin to imagine yet. This is your mission. I think I'd have my hand up at that point. And I'd be like, do you think we could start this in Hawaii, somewhere nice, some Somewhere with you know soft music where the people you know might have an affinity for us and might take to us more quickly, and Jesus says, "No, it starts in Jerusalem, and you 're going to be my witnesses, and this story is going to go and go till the ends of the earth and I, and i just aware I am prone to moments of, of crazy self doubt so I know what this is like, and I, I, imagine, I imagine in my mind there must have been moments when the disciples looked at each other and went i 'm really just a fisherman that's I've, done, I've been fishing all my life and I've followed this guy for a few years. I'm not sure I can do this. I think the self-doubt would have been numbing as Jesus, their star player, the person that did the miracles, that made sense of the world, is gone. And in his absence, the doubt would just have been crazy. This is a, this is a room of mostly fishermen tasked with changing the world. It's interesting, I think, and insightful the only response that this bunch of people make that Luke records for us, and we always, when you're a preacher, often the Peter's the easy target, but we beat up on the disciples because they do the thing that we would do. They do the silly thing. They, they say the silly thing, or they say the selfish thing. But it's really helpful. I can't. I've not noted the verse, but maybe you can see it there. It's at the start of the story. The disciples ask one question. They get they get this mind-changing, earth-altering instruction. This command that he's going to shape church and change the whole world, and they have one question. It is, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, it's not the worst question in the world, but it is, it's like, this is my perspective on things. This is is what I think it means to me. I'm worried about Israel. Jesus has told them we're going to save the whole world. That's the plan of God, to save the whole world, and the disciples go, what about Israel? It reminded me, on a much smaller scale, of sometimes the question that your kids can ask when you've got something big going on, your kids will bring you a problem that's just finite and tiny. So just the other week, we're flogging the house, put the house up on the market. It's a lovely house. If you're interested, please see us afterwards. Um, and we've, and it, but it looks nothing like the pictures. We've got to be honest about this. We just spent all day just like clearing the house. It look, and it looked splendid. And we got like, we tasked everybody up. We said, kids, you know, you need to be involved with this too. We need to tidy your room and the lady was coming at this certain time to take the photographs and we were working, you know, falling out, working, trying to get the whole thing done and then the kids come down and they were trying to do their own little bit of the story and they had this massive argument about like literally like five bits of Lego. It was like that. It's like, this is my Lego and, and what I wanted to say was, look, we're trying to fix this. The big thing is what we're trying to fix and you're just bothered about this and I'm not, in, in saying this, I am not dismissing the, what, the Israel's involvement in the, in the story and purposes of God, but Jesus had told the disciples about the big plan, and they were just focused in on their own little bit. And I was reminded of how we view church sometimes. We get kind of totally hung up on like it becomes church to us becomes about this. This person's annoying me, um, and I'm annoyed about this because it should be like this, and we, this becomes the whole church story. and I think Jesus would sometimes go to us, "What? That's the story of church is about way more than this the story of church is is more even about than, than the people that are meeting here the story of church is is the homeless person that you walk past on your way back from work every now and again the, the, the story of church is the neighbors that you're, you're trying to talk to and build relationships with the story of church is so much bigger and sometimes we get so hung up on the sort of smaller details of church miss the bigger picture and Jesus says to his disciples, and there is a purposeful pregnant pause in the story of Luke. He says, wait for the Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Wait for the Spirit. Nothing. And if you read through the book of, read through the book of Luke and the book of Acts, Nothing ha- happens without the Spirit's work. The Spirit is in, in, in the birth of Christ, in the witness of Christ, in the affirmation of Christ, right the way through the story of Luke, the Holy Spirit is there. And there's this purposeful pause over these disciples tasked with this impossible task of reaching the rest of the world and this thought that this, they need the Spirit. And in a sense, without the Spirit, the church is really just a bunch of fishermen and a few other people in a house, scared to death, potentially being snuffed out. And then the Spirit comes. Acts chapter 2, an inspirational read. And we're not going to read it all, but maybe maybe you'll know a little bit about when the Spirit comes at Pentecost. All the disciples, again, together in one room, and there's the sound of a violent wind. Tongues of fire come to rest on the people. The Spirit comes at Pentecost. Luke says, Look at this. This is a significant moment. This is an important moment. And you take a character like Peter, who had been sort of prone to moments of fear, um, you know, plagued by sort of moments of, you know, mistake. And he, he leaves this room. A great picture. He leaves this room and he begins to preach full of the Holy Spirit to the people that have gathered around from all different parts of the world. And Luke takes his time to say, look who's here to listen to this. They've all come for Pentecost. I'm going to read them out just to illustrate two things that I can't pronounce fancy biblical names, but also to demonstrate the fact that this message is going out to the whole world. Parthians, Medes, Eliamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians, people from Pontius Asia, Phrygia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Rome, Crete, and Arabia. Basically, the whole of the known world, the whole of the known biblical world is there, and the miracle is that they all understand the words that Peter is saying. Everybody understands what he's saying. Peter preaches in his own native language, and everybody listens, and they all said, we all understood that. And out of nowhere, against all the odds, under the power of the Spirit, this Impossible mission, this mission to reach the ends of the earth becomes possible through the lips of this simple fisherman. Here's a piece of prose about the spirit. The spirit is like breath, the little tide that rises and falls 23,000 times a day in a rhythm so intimate that we forget to notice until it fails. Inhale, exhale, expand, release. With breath, the creator kindled the stars, parted the sea, woke a valley of dry bones, inspired a sacred text. So too, the spirit, inhaled and exhaled in a million ways, animates, revives, nourishes, sustains, speaks. It is as near as the nose and as everywhere as the air. So pay attention. The spirit is like Fire deceptively polite in its dance atop the waxen wick of our church candles but wild and mercurial as a storm when unleashed fire holds no single shape no single form it can roar through a forest or fulminate in a cannon it can grow it can glow in hot coals or it can be it can flit about in embers but it cannot be held. When God led his people through the wilderness, the spirit blazed in a fire that rested over the tabernacle each night. And when God made the church, the spirit blazed in little fires that rested over his people's heads. Quench not the spirit, the apostle wrote. It is as necessary and as dangerous as fire. So stay alert, pay attention. Why does Luke emphasize this need for us to wait on the spirit It's because we need the spirit. We need the spirit. Sometimes we go through our lives without it, but we need it. I was watching Bear Grylls, the island. Um, And if you've not seen it, you don't need to watch it every week to get where I'm headed with this. The storyline is almost always the same. It takes a bunch of celebrities and puts them on this island. And there's always some alpha male macho idiot who, who, who sets off saying... Guys, I've got this, follow me. And he goes straight into this headlong plan of building something or, or trying to find some crocodile or something like that. Just this big crazy mission. Everybody gets dragged along with him. And, uh, and in, in last week's episode, he said, right, we're going we're to build a shelter. first day there, we're going to build a shelter. And all the group are exhausted, putting all their energy into this shelter. And after like a day, they're all just kind of collapsed in a heap. They've not got water. And Bear Grylls does that piece to camera with his, with his wisdom. And he says, they need fire. These people are nothing without fire and water. And they, they, they expounded all of their energy into things that weren't quite the right things to do. And I just thought, man, that is a, isn't that just what humans do? Often that's just what I do. So often I kind of rush into stuff, prioritize half the wrong stuff and forget what's really important. Every now and again I'm reminded, oh, this is what's really important. The Bible holds us here to this picture of the importance of the spirit in our lives that we neglect so often. And the Apostle Paul says, and we'll sort of pull it together with these thoughts. He says, don't put it out. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do you ever feel like in your Christian life, you get a bit carried away? Have you ever had that? Where you're like, you just, you you feel really challenged. God in your heart it's like, you want to get to know him better and you end up dropping a load of stuff and you're like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend some time getting to know God. Or you, you find yourself in the rhythm of praying every morning, God's sort of challenging you about something like that or you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to aspire to holiness and you're almost compelled to it and then, and then a couple of days down the line you realize, oh man, this is taking over my life. I need, to, I need to stop this. I just need to be careful with this amount of enthusiasm I have. Apostle Paul says, don't quench the Holy Spirit. It does incredible things. And he says, rather than quench it, and he's, he's right there, so don't quench the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, rather than quench it, fan it into flame, 2, 2 Timothy 1. Fan it into flame. I love this notion. We were, uh, we were away camping in Cornwall last week, week before last, and... Uh, Barbecue had gone out. The kids wanted to toast marshmallows. They were all like, "Dad, you promised us marshmallows. We're going to toast marshmallows." The barbecue were on its last legs, and with my, I've like two or three things, of, two or three things of outdoor wisdom that I know, and I grabbed a frisbee, and I was able to get the frisbee and waft it under the barbecue, and the kids were really impressed with my outdoor dad skills. They were like, "This is amazing!" And all of a sudden, the flames came rushing up, and they were like, "Dad, but that was out." The great picture. The encouragement for us from scripture is not to quench it, not to just ignore the Holy Spirit working in our lives, but to fan it into flame, to give it some room, to give it some enthusiasm. So, so when, when we're getting carried away in the Spirit and when we're really enthused about our faith, remember that it's that same Spirit, Apostle Paul tells us again, this is the same Spirit that lives in you that raised Jesus from the dead. It's that same spirit that makes this impossible, humanly speaking, impossible mission to save the world, to go out onto the streets of Cass and beyond and beyond. This humanly impossible job. Who's going to listen to us a bunch of Christians? Makes it possible is if we start with the spirit. Without the spirit, we are just a bunch of like fishermen. Scared to death in a room with no hope of reaching the world. With the spirit, we can go with confidence. Because God, as Paul said to Timothy, God has not given you a spirit of timidity. He's given you a spirit of power. And that's not, I always read that as, Paul's beating up on this guy who's a bit shy. He's not beating up on this guy who's a bit shy. And he's not asking us all to become evangelical missionaries. He's saying the spirit that resides within you is God. And that can change everything. I'm going to bring it to a close at this point. My, um, when I was about twelve, I think I remember saying to my dad, um, "Dad, the Bible is rubbish. It's so boring. I aren't, I'm not going to read it anymore." And he said, "Son, read the Book of Acts. There's, there's, there's death. There's danger. There's romance. There's—I don't think there's romance actually. But he's, you know, he went, went all on like this. And I was like, and I read it, and actually, yeah, this is a really good book. But I'd, I'd love you to join us on this journey as a church, read through the story of the book of Acts, not, not just for the romance that isn't actually there, because you'd be disappointed, but because it's our story, this is the story of us, this is, this is the message, and this is the message that can really change the world, if we believe it.